Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of capital allocators or their firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of capital allocators or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities discussed on this podcast. My guest on today's show is Sanjay Ayer, a portfolio manager at WCM Investment Management, the Laguna-based $80 billion equity manager profiled on popular past episodes with CEO Paul Black, President Mike Trigg, and Emerging Market Portfolio Manager Mike Tian. Sanjay joined WCM in 2007, and alongside Mike Trigg, leads the firm's research process that follows the mantra, think different and get better. Our conversation is a fascinating exploration of the differentiated mindset at WCM. We discuss topics including self-discovery, cognitive dissonance, thinking differently, getting better, compounding knowledge, reflection time, and feedback loops, all in the context of Sanjay's path and the application of the concepts to WCM's research process, investment examples, and business. Before we get going, you may have noticed in recent weeks we occasionally drop a mid-roll advertisement, a little spot midway through the show. We're experimenting with mid-roll ads for products that I think can be useful to you, either personally or professionally. These mid-rolls will not be for investment services. We'll continue having industry-related sponsors at the top of the show. We're not planning to run the volume of ads you'd hear on Tim Ferriss, Joe Rogan, or Smartless, 
but we do love finding and sharing things of value. The first of these is NetSuite by Oracle. It's a great product for CFOs you can hear more about on the show. NetSuite has offered a guide to understand KPIs for those who engage with their app. We'd love a little assistance from you in making our experiment work. Hop on netsuite.com slash allocators and download their KPI checklist. I recognize it may be difficult for you to do it if you're driving at the moment or if you're in the middle of a set of squats at the gym, but when you get a chance, we'd greatly appreciate your help in exceeding whatever KPI Oracle's created for their ads on the show. Thanks so much for engaging with our latest sponsor initiative so we can bring you more goodies along the way. Please enjoy my conversation with Sanjay Ayer. Sanjay, great to see you. Great to be here, Ted. Why don't you take me back to what first got you interested in investing? It's an interesting combination of curiosity about business and psychology. So growing up in Connecticut, I used to tell people when I grow up, I want to be an international businessman. I have no idea what that meant, or I had no idea, but it sounded cool. But, you know, I dabbled in various businesses. I remember when eBay first came out, I had like a spelling arbitrage model going where I'd buy misspelled tickets and resell them with the proper spelling. So just odds and ends like that. I had an interest in business, but it was really in college where I took a behavioral psychology class. And what's interesting about that, Ted, is I used to have a major insecurity about not having strong opinions about as many things as most people seem to. My response to that was just to learn more about everything, but it felt a little inauthentic and forced. But taking that psychology class and just learning about the biases people have and why with the same set of facts, people have significantly different opinions. I started to reframe that insecurity into an asset, thinking if I can understand why people have different opinions and then maybe map out why those opinions will converge over time, why, how, and when. That would be an interesting approach, and it dovetails with how I think about investing nowadays, which is basically a convergence in expectations. So how'd you get started professionally? Yeah, so out of college, my first job was an equity analyst at a company called Morningstar in Chicago. And when I joined, it was kind of an upstart equity research service within a bigger shop known for mutual fund analysis. And it was just a tremendous place to start a career. Yeah, I think a lot about how people start their careers and the impact of luck and path dependence. And Morningstar really grounds you in the right framework, long-term thinking, focus on business quality. And there was a really neat culture there. It's collaborative, it's empowering, and it was a lot of fun. So worked with one of my colleagues now at WCMI Trig. We had a great group there, and I just learned a lot. And you were thrown in the deep end and given a lot of responsibility at a young age. How did you decide to leave? I always had this thought that I wanted to transition to the buy side. And I, at the time, believed the right way to do that was to transition to business school as the gateway. So about three and a half years in, I decided the time was right to move on, and I joined business school. And not a traditional business school path, if I remember right. So what happened when you got there? I guess one of my claims to fame is I'm a business school dropout. It's one of those life events, Ted, where you just realize pretty quick it's not for you. I had an instinct that I was doing business school because it was perceived as the right thing to do as opposed to it actually being what I wanted to do. And that's never really been the compass with which I operate. So it was tough. I mean, there's a lot of sunk costs, a lot of relationships. One of those decisions, if you ask a lot of people, you'll quickly be talked out of it. So I just on my own went with my gut and I quit school about 10 to 12 weeks in. And what was the plan when you quit? I didn't really have too much of a plan. So I thought about, there was various business startup ideas I had. One was the launch Shake Shack concept before Danny Meyer pioneered that concept. I was thinking maybe do a part-time MBA and get a full-time job. I didn't have a firm plan. So it was pretty much jumping off the deep end and hoping at that point things would work out. How did that bring you to WCM? One of my colleagues, Ed Morningstar, Mike Trigg, who I know you've had on the show, he had joined WCM a year prior to me leaving business school, and he caught wind of my departure. And him and I were pretty close, pretty like-minded. We worked actually side-by-side side at Morningstar. So he gave me a call and said, why don't you fly out to Laguna Beach, a company called WCM, there might be a fit. I'd never been out to Southern California. Made the flight, met the people, and was sold pretty quick. What did you find about WCM that resonated for you? First is the people. I didn't have much context. I'd never worked on the buy side, but you walk in and it feels like a very disarming 
culture where people are having fun, intensely searching for the truth and the best possible judgment. But there's a strong emphasis on relationships, which I didn't expect. I thought the buy side would be much more formal. I think by and large, I've learned that it is. And what really appealed to me was an irreverence of industry norms. It seemed to be a firm that did things by first principles, things as simple as how you dress, people wearing shorts and sandals, how people talk, which is how humans talk as opposed to a lot of jargon. Didn't know much about the industry, but was sold by the people. So once you showed up, how did you plug into what was happening? I just learned on the fly. So it was similar to Morningstar in that you're given a lot of responsibility and it's up to you to define your own career path. What I've learned to love about investing, Ted, is I view it to be a platform for self-discovery. It's effectively a mirror. It can reveal your biases, your insecurities, your temperament, what type of teammate you are, what type of communicator you are, just so much about you, if you allow it to be. I was someone who have always been pretty introspective and reflective. I would try things, I would get feedback, I'd iterate, and I'd take these fledgling concepts we had around our philosophy of investing. And I just, with the help of Mike, Paul, and others, just really try to build on those and turn intuitions into a more formal framework. What did you learn about yourself in those early years? I learned a lot. I learned that one thing I had to conquer was this notion of cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is when you have a worldview and then you're confronted with disconfirming evidence, you just get very defensive. It's uncomfortable. So your mind races to mental gymnastics to reconcile those views, explain it away, rationalize it, etc. What I learned through a lot of mistakes and tough decisions was if you can lean into cognitive dissonance, it actually makes life a lot easier. It's paradoxical in that way. It sounds hard mentally to hold two opposing ideas in your head, but if you can get to that point where you can, it can be very liberating. And a lot of the biases you have melt away. So that was the big early step function change in my career. How do you reconcile the idea of holding different views in your head at the same time with developing conviction? Yeah, that's the art of investing. Strong opinions loosely held is a common term. And I think that's what the North Star should be, or at least my view it should be, is you have to act on what you know while still doubting what you know. And it's a difficult balance and you want to strike it right. You don't want to be stuck in cognitive dissonance and be unable to make a decision, but you also don't want to make decisions and have blinders on. So that's just a balance I think each person has to get through on their own. As you started working through learning with this team of people around you, how did you form what became the core of the research effort? It's kind of a build-your-own-plane-as-you-fly-it type mentality. Right? I guess we had intuitions around how a team should operate, philosophically, a few concepts, mode trajectory and culture. But it was really, how do you build processes and a high-performance team around that? One of my other claims to fame is I did have pretty big setbacks early on. Internally, we joke about one of my midlife crises was going to a Young Brands Analyst Day back in 2010. So I was three years into the job. And this was in New York. We owned Yum at the time. And at that point, the firm wasn't doing well. This was after market hours. One of the stocks I'd recommended and we owned was down, I think, 35% after hours. So I was not in a good mood. And so I went back into the analyst day and Taco Bell, which is one of Yum's properties, was presenting. And Taco Bell gave the presentation, talked about the financials and whatnot. But then they started to preview their product pipeline. And so they put a commercial about their next-gen product. I guess it was a Chalupa at that point in time. And there was just a moment, Ted, where time froze. You know, I looked around the room and I just saw a lot of smart people wearing suits, acting the part, taking notes about this commercial, which you just reflect on that. Taco Bell at the time, I'm going to have these numbers wrong, it was 20% of Yum's profit this product was going to be infinitesimal percentage of Yum's profits, yet hundreds of people are taking notes about this. And that's fine. But what made it a lot worse was I was taking notes too. So here I was, someone who could talk in abstract terms about the biases of the industry and what people get wrong and how people don't spend their time wisely, yet I was doing the same exact thing. So I was the person who everyone knows in their lives who preaches about meditation, but actually doesn't meditate themselves. Yeah, that was me. 
it hit me hard that I was a fraud in that respect. And it sent me on an internal journey about what are these gravitational forces at play that even though I know in conceptual terms what I should be doing, I'm doing effectively what everyone else is doing. So what'd you do when you came to that discovery? I went on a journey. I really just got very introspective, started to read a lot about how people spend their time in various professions and what are some of the mistakes people make and try to draw analogies with what is it about investing where people are not spending their time wisely? What are these unwritten rules or norms that are causing people to succumb to groupthink? And I started to see patterns where there are certain industries where there's some creativity involved, where it's difficult to connect cause and effect, that you just get these rules. People try to minimize career risk, and people try to sound smart. So you can think about groupthink and fixed mindset. It's interesting because in some ways you would think investing should be a clean slate. People should operate very differently. There's no one rate to do things. But really, I went on a journey of unpacking the why. Why do people behave the same? Why is there so much groupthink? Why is there so much fixed mindset? And then can we create a team, a culture, organization that can insulate ourselves from some of those forces? What were some of the analogs in other industries that share those characteristics of there's creativity, there's less determinism about what's good and bad? You think about movie studios. I think if you're greenlight a movie, it's kind of like picking a stock. You often get described as having the magic touch. If that's how you're judged, it's natural that you're going to develop fixed mindset, especially if there's some luck and cause and effect questions at play. You're going to build an ego. You're not going to admit mistakes. So it's natural you're going to get fixed mindset in those professions. You can think about sports. If you're a general manager, people get elevated. Cover stories are written about that notion of a magic touch. So I think that's one major commonality is that level of a creative quotient And it's an unconstrained environment. The one thing I've learned is you would think an unconstrained environment leads to more creativity, but it's the old playground analogy. If you put a fence around a playground, the kids start to spread out and explore. If you take away the fence, everyone starts to huddle towards the middle. And you could think of that as minimizing risk or career risk in a professional setting. It's a handful of those professions where you're not exactly sure what you should be doing. It's tough to tease out cause and effect. And these unwritten rules seep in, and no one bothers to really question why they exist. When you went to build the type of culture, that research culture at WCM, how did you take those insights and turn them into something that would set the framework for what you wanted to do? Effectively standing them on their head and taking the inverse. So if you think about groupthink, how can you create a core value that is opposed to groupthink? And so we came up with a core value called Think Different which we didn't coin it. Apple coined it well before us, but it's very profound in investing that if you want different results, you should do things differently. Having a self-awareness around the base rates of the industry, asking why should we have conviction? We can defy the base rate. Under the constraint, we're not going to pivot to minimizing career risk. So building that core value of think different, making sure we message it and build processes and guardrails around it. And then fixed mindset, standing on its head and saying, Let's build a core value around getting better. Let's take the opposite, a growth mindset. And so how can we build behaviors that will really allow us to reflect, get better, stay humble, and not succumb to that? So as you break both of those down, when you started framing out what you were trying to do is think different, what are some of the things you saw that were ways that groupthink was permeating how people went about research? There's a gravitational pull towards expiring knowledge. There's so much noise out there. And if you don't build guardrails around how you spend your time, you're going to fall into this notion of just gathering more information, having a reactive mindset, benchmark hugging, just doing things in a way that you're just building out a more is better approach. Really trying to Think about from a portfolio standpoint, having high active share. From a knowledge standpoint, leaning into what we now call compounding knowledge as opposed to expiring knowledge and codifying this concept of what we call return on time. How should you spend your time and the team spend their time in a way that will maximize outcomes? So what are some examples of compounding knowledge as opposed to expiring knowledge a little bit easier to understand? Picking stocks is effectively just a series of judgment calls. You're taking a lot of information, you're overlaying your own opinion, and you're making a judgment on that specific security at a given point in time. And that's how most shops and most analysts tend to operate. 
a compounding knowledge approach would be saying, yes, let's do all that bottom-up micro work. But are there fields of knowledge out there that can structurally elevate the odds that you make a series of those judgments, more than one? So you could think about corporate culture. If you understand a company's culture, you can overlay that culture onto each of those judgment calls over a period of time. So maybe that boosts your batting average by a few percentage points, but that can compound significantly over time. As we think about moat frameworks, how to think about competitive advantage, that's another field of compounding knowledge. If you can build patterns around it, that's more evergreen, it's more scalable, and you can apply it to multiple judgment calls. As you've laid out moat trajectory and culture as those two core components of your research process, I'm curious if there are other big pockets that you've discovered or looked at carefully and discarded as something that is consistently favorable enough for companies and stocks that contribute to that compounded knowledge? Yeah, those are the two we've stumbled upon to date. There's been so much runway on building out each of those as far as processes and how to do it. I think each of those concepts are sensible in theory, but there's a whole art. The reasonably small team in Laguna Beach, how do you tease out the corporate culture of a company in Brazil? How do you identify growing modes? So a lot of my journey has been focused on doing those two better. At the same time, we are thinking about planting research and development seeds to coming up with third or fourth field of compounding knowledge, understanding base rates, understanding these things over the arc of time get competed away. So nothing to share just yet, but we're always thinking about how to push the envelope on philosophy. How do you think differently about valuation? It's something in the basic academia of thinking about value investing, there's a lot of pencil sharpening that goes into valuation. And then in growth stock investing, you hear more about stories than that type of pencil sharpening. It's funny because when I started my career at Morningstar, it's hard to believe at this point, but growth investing was associated with career risk. Value investing was perceived as very disciplined. You were exploiting these well-trodden behavioral inefficiencies, mean reversion, recency bias, time arbitrage. And growth investing was just reckless. You were just chasing stocks. And growth investing can be reckless for sure, but so can value. I don't love how people distinguish these terms. I'll try not to get too caught up in it, but you can overpay for a great and improving company, but you'll recover over time. It might take a long time, but you'll recover. There's a pathway for recovery. Whereas if you misvalue a bad business, there's no pathway to recovery. So it's just how you define reckless. For us, valuation, there's a couple of ways we think about it. One is to say valuation for the end of the process. I think if you have a valuation first mindset, it steers you towards a value traps effectively, companies that are becoming less good on the margin. And then the other thing we think about is have a first principles approach to valuation. I think investors sometimes get caught up in the heuristics of the day. Take software, there's this rule of 40 concept that's become very popularized. And in reality, I think if you just study unit economics, you study distribution, you study culture, just from first principles bottom up, you can develop strong variant perceptions around valuation and not get caught up in the flavor of the day. When you start thinking about getting better, you mentioned the importance of how you manage your time. And we'd love to hear more about how you go about assessing and improving that important characteristic of what you do. It's a concept I think a lot about. So there's a mathematician, Richard Hamming. He had an observation that employees who work in an office with a closed door get more done than people who work in an office with an open door, but they end up working on the wrong problems. And I think that's a really interesting insight, whereas when thinking about this notion of what we call now return on time, like how are people actually spending their time day to day? And are you carving out time to get better, to think different? Or are you just coming to that gravitational pull we talked about? We think a lot about being reflective. So right now, actually, we're doing a reflection week internally. We do it twice a year where we carve out a week and you're turning off all your screens, you're not looking at stock quotes or news, and you're just reflecting in the spirit of getting better. I'm a big believer in artificial constraints. I think constraints can unlock creativity. As we talked about, too unconstrained in an environment actually inhibits creativity. And you need to be jolted out of it. So I think, again, it's just this notion of building guardrails and not slipping into that reactive information gathering mindset and being aware of opportunity costs. I think a lot of investors get that wrong. Just thinking about the opportunity costs on your time, what else you could be doing and codifying that. So there's various ways we 
have constraints to be reflective about it. What have you learned from some of that reflection? The main thing I've learned is you do these return on the time audits and they start to look similar. You start to see the gravitational pull that despite knowing these things about information gathering, everyone tends to have the same regrets. I spent too much time following news or I was a little bit inefficient with how I traveled. I caught up in the day-to-day and didn't spend enough time on the R&D work. Another one we learned about is mode trajectory is about detecting change. And if you're zoomed in too much, you're going to be slow to see change. So I think one of the reasons why specialists are struggle with the notion of mode trajectory is you're in a vacuum. You're in an echo chamber. You're just covering a sector. You're doing travel with fellow analysts. You're talking to management teams. If I'm a newspaper analyst and the internet came along, I'm going to be the last person who recognizes the disruption just because I'm caught in an echo chamber. We found that we were, for instance, doing too much in the way of earnings updates. That Once a quarter, we publish updates on every earnings announcement. And from a team return on time standpoint, it started to become clear that was very low. People were spending a lot of time publishing those. Everyone was consuming those. In reality, generally speaking, not much changes in a given quarter. The worst impact was we were missing slow motion change because we were too zoomed in. So one of the changes that came out of a series of audits was let's do a more higher level thesis refresh every six to nine months on a name as opposed to getting inundated with these quarterly updates. What are some of these other guardrails that you put in place so that you are spending your time on the right things? We signal, we message, we have artifacts in the office. If you walk over to our conference room, you'll see two airplane seats. And the reason for that is we found our best ideas are not standing in front of a screen. They are going on travel in a group, flying back home, sitting across from each other with no Wi-Fi and just chatting, downloading on the trip, chatting about what we can improve on, talking about the team. These are conversations that just would not happen in the office, despite everyone's best intentions. Thinking about things creatively as far as how should we travel to really maximize insights through constraints, through modeling, through reflection week and audits, and then thinking about how do you generate feedback to get better. It's great conceptually to say we have a get better mindset or core value. How do you go about doing it? I'm curious of these airline seats. Have you found that you can replicate the experience just by having the seats in your office? It's funny. No, they don't get used enough in the office. We tell people, if you want to go on a drive and just think, don't listen to music or podcasts, sorry, but just make sure you carve out time to think and be intentional about it. Go on a walk. We don't clock office time. We like being in the office, but there's no requisite for FaceTime. Really, where I get bothered, I just see people in their office looking at daily pricing quotes all the time. I'll say, you know what? Get up, get out. Go take a walk, think about something creative, and come back. How do you think about the balance of the need, whether it's guardrails or just process of staying on top of what's happening with companies, with that more creative or even the R&D concept of how you want to improve your process? I think the course correction will always have to be towards R&D. Because I think just definitionally, just given how much you're inundated with news flow and quotes and just coming into the office every day, it's very hard for me to envision a case where someone's focused too much on R&D and is missing the boat on individual stock picks. So I think the guardrails, at least to date, are always pointed towards how do you carve out time to think more big picture? Because the blocking and tackling tends to take care of itself, given you're just confronted with a lot of this news flow and information on a daily basis. What's an example of how some of that R&D has impacted your investment process? So one significant process tweak we made is replacing our, what was a generic risks section in our write-ups with now what we call a pre-mortem section. And the pre-mortem goes something like this. It's three years from now, so say 2027, and this company's mode trajectory has flipped negative. What happened? And I think the pre-mortem really, getting back to cognitive dissonance, really acts as a forcing function for coming to grips on the front end with cognitive dissonance and owning it at the time as opposed to suffering from it later on if and when the story turns for the worse. And I think mitigating the risk of confirmation bias down the road significantly 
enhances cell discipline. And it also helps you think through the key focus areas for maintenance research. And I draw a big distinction there with what we were seeing in our risk section, which often amounted to vague or abstract risks that you either really weren't worried about or weren't specific enough to create any useful focus, things like macro or just generic competition and so on. The pre-mortem, we find it especially helpful when our company's firing on all cylinders, the story is perceived to be bulletproof. There's a lot of consensus excitement around it because it really forces you to think hard and be creative when thinking about how the story could flip. One example of pre-mortem on an idea or theme that's doing extremely well at the moment is in the obesity drug space. So companies like Nova Nordisk, Eli Lilly, which have come out with these new seemingly blockbuster drugs where the future looks very bright. And so in the previous world, a risk section might look something like, I'm worried about competition down the road or unexpected side effects from these drugs emerging. And you see there, it's not really specific. It doesn't really guide focus areas for ongoing research. Presumably, you were comfortable with those two risks in the course of your write-up. Whereas a pre-mortem for us would be something like, look, a generalist investor could get tripped up with these names because they are misapplying lenses from consumer goods or technology where breakout products can benefit from positive feedback loops. In technology, you have network effects. and consumer goods, you have brand virality. And in healthcare, and especially in pharmaceuticals, through history, you notice there are negative feedback loops. You have big major counterparties, namely managed care companies and regulators who have very different incentives than the drug companies and can act as a limiter to growth. And so our pre-mortem with the obesity drug companies would be at this point that they held a deaf ear to these counterparty relationships and that ultimately short-circuited the durability of the growth curve. And in fact, the super high exponential growth early on, which investors got excited about, actually exceeded the conditions for an eventual counterparty backlash and a negative inflection in that mode trajectory. And you can see there the focus areas for ongoing research would be asking questions to the companies and counterparties as far as how are you managing these relationships? What lessons did you learn from other drug classes like statins or PCSK9 drugs? What lessons have you learned from insulin pricing over the last decade where there might have been some self-inflicted wounds from mistakes of this kind. So I think the pre-mortem has been a really effective process change for us. And in fact, it surprised us to the upside in several ways. As you've grown both in assets and the organization over the last bunch of years, how have you taken some of those ideas to make the team better? That's an interesting thought. Well, the third unstated core value of the research team, this think different, get better, is make the team better. And all the leaders say we all intrinsically prefer a team-based approach. We believe it leads to more durable outcomes, and it just happens to be more fun. And I think what I've found is if you have a culture where people optimize for themselves and their own career path, you really just introduce a bunch of unspoken friction into the process that just bubbles underneath the surface and gets in the way of good judgment. So insecurities, biases, fear, career standing point scoring, all this friction and noise. Whereas if people are waking up thinking about how can I make the team better? Am I truly rooting for my colleague's success? All of a sudden that friction melts away and it shifts the mindset from a zero-sum one where your views are competitive to almost a win-win one. What views can be additive because all you're trying to do is collectively push the ball forward to get the best possible outcome. So that's been something in the last few years we've really started to highlight more is try to wake up every day and take that team mindset, perspective take, what's in the team's best interest as opposed to just focusing on your own silo. I'm really curious when you take that concept into practice, there's a nice, warm, feel-good concept of, hey, we'll all make mistakes, but we can get better with, you also want to have the best players on the field. And inevitably, you're going to have both of those things happen. I'm curious how you've managed messaging and the culture through the need at times to make change? Yeah, I think we're wired to change and get better. I think we just have the by way of luck maybe initially, but now our hiring process, we hire people who are wired to take advantage of this platform we created, where we insulate you from group thinking, fixed mindset and self-optimization. And we empower you to take advantage of a creative mindset, a growth mindset, and making teammates better. 
we're very intentional about who we bring in. We think about trajectory over pedigree. We like people who bet on themselves. We just want to plug them into this platform and see what happens. We don't get too defined with career roles. We want people to reinvent their own roles and evolve over time. I think for us, it's about really leaning into this platform we've created, find the best talent, but talent that's wired to really take advantage of the platform as opposed to just individuals operating in silos. How do you tease that out as you're getting to know someone and think about bringing them in? It takes time. I think just more interactions is better. Simulate working with them before you work with them. So we like long dialogues over, in some cases, years, where we exchange thoughts with the candidate. Hey, I'm thinking about this. What are you thinking about it? So if you could de-risk the simulation process and almost act as if you're working with them in the moment, I think that helps a lot. It's getting better now with things like Substack and journals and social media where you can see how people thought historically. So that helps you perspective take and, and how they would act today. There's a lot of thinking about building questions that really get to the core values of, do you have first principles thinking? Are you willing to admit mistakes? Are you self-aware? Are you scrappy? Do you have a solutions mindset? There's no shortcuts. And that's why our process is pretty painstaking if you're on the other side of it. I'd love to turn to how you take some of these concepts and put them into practice. Maybe the best way to do it is to start with the concept of moat trajectories and as you've created these typologies for what a growing moat looks like, what have you found that's a little different from what someone who thinks about a moat might? Moat trajectory conceptually is a pretty easy idea to get your head around, right? You think about economic moats, Porter five forces, and you just take the second derivative of it. Instead of looking for bargaining power, is your bargaining power growing, et cetera? Conceptually, I think even before you get to a framework, we find it very effective because it steers you away from value traps. Just fundamentally asking the question, is this business getting better? Just, I think, improves your sell discipline quite a bit because you don't get stuck in that growth to value whipsaw that can really hurt performance. And then the second thing it does is steers you towards where change and relevance is happening. So if the world is changing, mode trajectory, just having that second derivative mindset steers you towards where there is positive and negative change happening from the ground up. But then the question is like, how do you tease out mode trajectory? And through the notion of return on time, we had this premise that history might not repeat itself, but it tends to rhyme. So let's carve out time to do backward looking work. So case studies, data projects, looking back at large collections of companies and trying to tease out what separated good companies from great companies, from companies that haven't stood the test of time. And when we did enough of those, we started to develop these, what we now call mode typologies, which are effectively just pattern mapping onto economic modes. One example would be we've had a lot of success and we found historically a lot of outsourcing companies in various industries that can climb the value chain over time and evolve from low-value outsourced manufacturers, which is tend to be how outsourcing companies are born, to high-value outsourced R&D partners. They can grow their moats for incredibly long periods of time. And because the industry is organized around specialists, that creates an opportunity for significant variant perceptions. There was a Danish company we owned called Christian Hansen, which made the dairy cultures used in the production of yogurt and cheese. The company came public, I think, in 2010. It had maybe mid-20% profit margins at a multiple in the 20s. And what sell-side analysts should cover it? It's a weird company, right? Bacteria culture. So maybe you cover Dow and DuPont, other chemicals companies. Maybe you cover consumer brands. But whoever you are, this is a one-off company. And you look at it and you're saying, that hey, the margins look high relative to history. The valuation looks high relative to the rest of my coverage list. But through that pattern mapping and developing this outsourced service R&D typology, we're just redefining the reference class and saying, forget about what sector it is or industry. It's an outsourced R&D business model. What do similar business models who are more mature, what type of margins do they generate? A Taiwan Semiconductor, CRO and healthcare, and you find they can generate 30, 40% profit margins. So you just take that same set of information and you believe in mean reversion, you're just redefining the mean in a way. So you're fading those margins up, you're fading the valuation up, as opposed to the typical specialist who would take all that information and fade it downward. So that's how you can, through these mode typologies, we have about 
12 or 13 of them today. Just see patterns that others might not see through an outside view type framework. What's another example of one that cuts through different industries, but works if you look at it as its own typology? One that we find ourselves owning more and more is what we call niche industrials. And so these are companies that operate in a niche, have a significant market share, but in an industry with limited scale. So it doesn't invite multiple competitors. There tends to be a complicated route to market. It could be an engineer to engineer sale. And oftentimes there is that climbing the value chain element to them. And niche industrial would make you think they should be industrial companies. But in fact, many healthcare companies. We owned a company called West Pharmaceutical which is a pharmaceutical packaging company. And for us, what it is effectively, it's a niche industrial. It's a low cost of goods, extremely high cost of failure product, 75 cents for a rubber stopper or plunger that goes in a syringe for a drug that costs $1,000 plus a dose. What makes our business model unique is the packaging is part of the product from a regulatory standpoint. So if you want to switch suppliers and switch from West to a competitor, you have to refile for approval. So that's going to take years of testing and trials. And you're not going to take a chance on a fly-by-night operator in China to save a few cents. So that's one where a similar concept, we looked at it, I think, at 15-ish percent margins when we bought it. And we said, look, other similar niche industrial companies, if it's a Graco and Amphenol, et cetera, they have margins in the 20s, sometimes 30s. So similar concept as, as the outsourced R&D one. How have you gotten better at research on the culture of businesses? It's a journey, Ted. I was a skeptic on culture when I first joined. I had read the book, The Halo Effect, before I read Good to Great. And almost everyone who loves culture started with Good to Great as what drew them in as far as the secret sauce of durable, outstanding companies. Whereas Halo Effect will say, people get the cause and effect. They reverse the causality there. If a company is performing well, people will describe it as having a good culture, but it's the performance dictating the explanation as opposed to the culture driving the performance. So I had a skeptical view, and it was only through a lot of learning the mistakes, auditing some of my winners and losers over the years that I got to a point where I was drinking the Kool-Aid on culture. And really, over the last 15 years, we've just steadily developed a playbook around it. For instance, it's I think a lot of people think about culture as touchy-feely, right? Are employees happy? And for us, that's not the question. It's more about alignment. Are employees behaving in a way that will help that company grow its moat? Very different for an industrial company, a railroad versus a tech company like a Google. You could just conceptualize the different behaviors and cultures. That notion of alignment, that notion of adaptability, you know, we found a lot of our best investments have been companies, especially in fluid industries like technology, companies that have been able to adapt and turn potential roadblocks into opportunities and capitalize on new opportunities that come their way. And so we have lots of examples of that. And then cultural strength. We did make a few mistakes where we're just betting on the people at the top and not asking ourselves, like, how deep is that culture? How widely held are those beliefs? How intensely felt are they? Figuring out the right questions to ask, who to talk to. We feel like this is something we're building on our own. There's no real textbook on how to analyze culture as an outsider. It's been a fun journey, and we've built out a whole team now that really focuses the majority of their time on just culture. What are some of those key questions that you've learned to ask that just help point you in the right direction? They sound simple. It's, tell me about a mistake you made and what you learned from it. That sounds like a basic interview question, but maybe you wouldn't be shocked. How many CEOs struggle to answer that question or talk about some irrelevant small acquisition they made? Whereas we own a company called Mercado Libre, which you probably know is like the Amazon slash PayPal in Latin America. And what we always loved about them was the level of candor they had about the mistakes they made and the level of external awareness. Tell me about something you admire that a competitor does. That'll jar most companies. They don't want to talk favorably about competitors. Whereas Mercado Libre would talk about, hey, here's what Alibaba is doing against JD in China. Here's what PayPal, maybe the mistakes they made in the U.S., and so having that external awareness, which I think is critical for adaptability. So each of those pillars, we break down and have various questions that we use to tease out how a company will score on those. But we also are constantly iterating on those questions as well. What have you found been the most effective practices to learning from mistakes through feedback on the team? I think feedback quality is the biggest challenge in investing. And I think 
concepts like deliberate practice have become popularized. Like how do you get better at golf? Just get out there. You take a lot of swings. You course correct. You embed the feedback. The problem in investing is that feedback quality is poor, at least for our flavor of investing. You're long-term. You're not making that many decisions. It takes a long time to get the feedback, multiple years if you're right or wrong. And then there's just a ton of noise and randomness in that time period. If you have any kind of formula around feedback quality, I think investing would score among the poorest of any professions. You have to be mindful of that challenge and make sure you are generating feedback that has high signal, which means generate lots of feedback and then carving out time to reflect on that feedback and looking for patterns. So you don't want to just act on an individual mistake because you could actually compound that mistake. But if you see patterns where it seem to be getting this type of investment wrong, let's explore why. And maybe it's an individual mistake. Maybe it's a team mistake. That can bubble up into a conversation. And one major initiative we actually completed recently to address this feedback quality problem in investing is building out a fully-fledged proprietary journaling app that's custom-made for investing. And so we've long here at WCM had a journaling culture to help create that raw material for learning. But it was highly scattered. I think Evernote journals, Excel spreadsheets, who knows, sticky notes. And we decided if we really wanted to be serious about high-quality, high-signal feedback, we needed to really step up and centralize this raw material for learning. So we spent a lot of time, a lot of money, building an application we called Project Everest that centralizes all this learning raw material and provides a really easy user interface for analysts to enter your entries and eventually do analytics on this data over time. And so, you know, really everything we do and all decisions we make, not just buys and sells, but passes, random predictions we make in the office, it's logged in there and tagged with a whole host of custom tags that we've created. It's been a fun initiative, and you can already see some of the signs as far as accelerated high signal learning. One example of that would be the setup we often see with founder CEOs have come out with a major new product or initiative. In the near term, it looks murky. Maybe the uptake from customers has been slower than expected, or there's some near-term financial pain because of the new initiative. I think there's often a notion that that's a setup where you want founder CEOs because they have that long-term vision, to long-term thinking, willing to look through short-term pain for long-term gain. Reed Hastings with Netflix and moving into streaming, Jeff Bezos with Prime. Those are often examples that people would point to. But we found for every Bezos or Hastings, there's dozens of examples we've encountered of these setups where a founder can actually run a company off the rails because the idea proved to be flawed. And you can imagine these scenarios where the founder has a track record of being a visionary. As an investor, it's very difficult to distinguish that grit and long-term thinking with stubbornness on a flawed idea. So with this Project Everest, we've been able to surface a bunch of these setups and launch a project to see if we can better tease out ex-ante if there are common patterns, right? So maybe bench strength is something to dig into. You're not having a bunch of yes-men where people can push back if the idea is in fact flawed. Maybe it's self-awareness or introspection from the founder to pivot or course correct when the feedback is negative. Maybe it's teasing out whether there's a defensive component to the new initiative and it's not purely offensive. Ideally, Everest, you have a lot of data points and you can run sophisticated analytics on. But even when you just have a handful of data points, I think you can explore hypotheses around certain patterns and launch some, I guess, R&D projects that for us could prove to be very high return on time. Over the last 10, 15 years, you've been at the firm, for the most part, you've been on this exponential one-way trajectory. And then fall of 21 hits, and for the first time in a while, growth stocks sell off a little bit. And I'm curious what you experienced over those last two years. Yeah, it really dovetails with your last question, Ted, about how do you incorporate feedback? It was a tough backdrop for us as growth investors, just given the pond we fish in, not having investments in areas like energy was difficult from a relative standpoint. But it was a unique environment for us because typically we tend to do well during down markets, and this was an outlier. And yes, there were some macro considerations to explain that, but I also think there were some mistakes we made. And there weren't mistakes in 2022, there were mistakes in 19, 20, 21, as far as maybe, for instance, how we didn't maybe diversify our research pipeline sufficiently. But 
again, it gets back to that feedback question because you could take two extremes. You could say like a football cornerback, just next play. Forget about what happened. It's always about the next play. That's the best way to operate. And there's puts and takes to that. On the opposite side, there's this notion of taking the intensity and grit to learning, which is about every day trying to get better. And the challenge with that is twofold. One, as we talked about, you could learn the wrong lesson because of poor feedback quality. But actually, the worst possible outcome, in my view, is learning the right lesson at the wrong time. At least in the medium term, you'll end up compounding the mistake you just made and drag out underperformance for many years. And so I think you have to take the feedback, understand, reflect on mistakes. But sometimes there are immediate changes to be made. And sometimes you want to park those mistakes and make more structural changes that won't yield payoffs for a few years. It takes a lot of intentionality to strike that balance. There's an example. You mentioned tweaking what was coming through your research pipeline as one of those lessons. I'd love to hear more about that. When you think about building a watch list and what you cover versus what you don't cover, in the last four or five years, there was a lot of new names coming across our radar in areas like software with a lot of IPOs, areas like semiconductors, areas like fintech. In the spirit of not having blind spots, I think we leaned into that from a research pipeline perspective and wanted to build sufficient coverage around these up-and-coming sectors. And I think just as we build a portfolio, or at least aspire to a portfolio that's all-weather, that can do well in different cycles, I think you could take that same mindset into your research pipeline and make sure your pipeline is adequately diversified by the type of business, the industry. Obviously, in hindsight, you could think about long duration, short duration type considerations. And then I think those guardrails were in place, but not to the extent at which they could have been. And so I think we got a little bit lopsided in the types of names we were writing up for a few years. And so that was a change we've made since. One of the other things that has changed in the organization over the years is expanding different strategies beyond international growth. And would love to hear your experience in building out the firm to be a more diversified offering. It's a really interesting question because I think growth in this industry has a bad name. If you're trying to product proliferation, it's a common concern if you're an allocator. And so we think about it a few ways. One, if we're going to build a new product, the first question is, can we do something different? We have no interest in building Me Too products. Can we leverage the WCM platform, those core values I talked about before? The third question, and the most challenging one, is how do you balance the added resources it'll take to sufficiently do that product well versus the notion that could this product make our existing products better? And I think we have a hypothesis, at least, that the products we've launched, like emerging markets, China, international small cap, they are making our, call it flagship products, for lack of a better term, better. And I'll give you an example. And nowadays, a lot of investors are thinking about industries like semiconductor equipment, life sciences, because there's really good businesses in these industries, and there's maybe a notion that the cycles are bottoming. That could be an area to deploy capital. I think where investors would be liable to get tripped up in these industries here is the snapback tends to be less sharp than expected because there's emerging competition from Chinese competitors. And so... Having a portfolio that invests in emerging markets, having a portfolio that invests in China, I think takes an offensive mindset towards those emerging competitors to the companies you own. And I think you'll be quicker to uncover blind spots and manage risk if there is a potential moat situation at play that if you didn't have those products, you just wouldn't be on top of. For instance, if I'm looking at Danaher, am I better off from a team return on time standpoint reading another case study on Danaher business system or researching a local Chinese competitor that's up and coming. And our view is the latter is at this point in time, a higher return on time. So I think when you think about growth, it doesn't necessarily have to be bad. You have to be mindful of obviously the outside view and what scale does to managers. But I think if you're intentional about it and you do it deliberately and you're self-aware about some of the trade-offs, you could do it in a way that improves the whole. What are some of the other areas of groupthink that you see in the industry that you've decidedly tried to do things differently? I think one of the things I think a lot about, Ted, is this notion that yeah, I like to use this term internally, creative laziness. And people hate it because analysts build their identity on grit and self-sufficiency and hard work. And say if you're using the term laziness, it's instantly re- rejected. But I like it because I think, again, it's this notion of everyone works hard in this industry. Everyone puts in the hours. And I think people zoom in too quickly. 
and they try to tackle things through brute force. And that's what we talked about earlier with that information gathering mindset and not asking, like, before rushing to answer a question, ask, is this the right question? As opposed to doing 10 expert network calls, maybe the best insight is coming from a small partner in Scandinavia. That's the person. We should fly on the plane and just meet that company because that's going to be the unique insight. I just see in the industry this notion of just tackling things through brute force, not bringing a creative elegance. I use this example, which people laugh at, is Nathan's hot dog eating contest. This guy Kobayashi wins all these contests. And what he did is he legitimately reframed the question from like, how do you eat more hot dogs to how do you make hot dogs easier to eat? He snaps it in half, he dips the bun in water. Maybe elegance is not the right word in that sense. But there is a creativity, a creative laziness that he brought to bear, which I think there's something to learn from there. As you've grown the assets and had more conversations and more clients come in, I'm curious what you've seen from the other side of the table as some of the things that resonate both positively and negatively. Negatively is easy. This notion of drift, it drives me crazy because I think getting better, it's almost punished. If you have a notion of getting better, learning from mistakes, showing vulnerability, having a growth mindset, the industry writ large will be very quick to ascribe the terms drift, style drift, process drift, thesis drift. It's like, we're going to make mistakes. We have made mistakes. Here's what they are. Wouldn't you rather us learn and get better rather than have our heads in the sand? Just have the blinders on. And I totally get why you're plugging a hole in the portfolio. You want to make sure that the fund plays the role you intended it to. But I think not just being too quick to jump to this notion of drift and understanding that everyone is trying to get better and evolve. And that shouldn't just be reflexively punished. You should try to perspective take on where you're coming from. I think we do a pretty good job, Ted, of being candid with prospects and allocators about here's when we're going to do well, here's when we're not going to do well. We're pretty transparent about who we are, what our values are, types of markets that will be more difficult. So I think we try not to make false promises. And so I think that is the same way if companies get the shareholders they deserve. I think we try our best to get the right aligned allocators involved. What are some of the lessons you've learned from some of the CEOs of your portfolio companies? There's a few that come to mind. A recent one is a portfolio holding called Arch Capital, which CEO's name is Mark Grandison. And Arch Capital, by way of backgrounds, it's an insurance company. It just has a phenomenal track record of growing book value and attractive returns on capital with limited volatility. And their secret sauce is this notion of cycle management. How do you operate with a counter-cyclical mindset in a predictably cyclical industry? taking advantage of human psychology, market psychology. But to the point what I learned, the CEO, Mark Granson, he uses this quote, luck is the residue of design. I think Branch Rookie is, it's attributed to him, but it probably predates him, I'm sure. But this notion of design in an organization and the culture, whether it's temperament, messaging, incentives, hiring, which you talked about, it's what investing is. How do you bring a counter-cyclical mindset to a cyclical industry? And marry that, as Arch does, with an entrepreneurial bent. I've learned a lot, and I've tried to increasingly try to aspire to model WCM after what they do. There's another executive at a company called Bajaj Finance in India. His name is Rajiv Jain. Bajaj is probably the most understudied consumer finance company in the world. It's probably what every emerging fintech company should aspire to be. And he uses this quote, like, long-term planning is often overrated and counterproductive. We think about that a lot because we're not big strategic planners, five-year vision type of manager because we think it can create blinders, right? You miss opportunities right in front of you. But I used to hide from that a little bit because it was that build your plane as you're flying it. And I think seeing a company like Bajaj evolve and just emerge into a Goliath through that mindset kind of gives me your conviction we're on the right path. And then the last one is one of my favorite executives. His name is Pedro Arndt. He is a CEO of D-Local. He came from Mercado Libre. And what I learned from him is just how to interact with the person on the other side of the table. He does it with candor and active listening or learning mindset, talking about mistakes. It opened my eyes to whether it's the fund manager with the corporate, whether it's a manager with an allocator. It doesn't have to be adversarial. It doesn't have to be nitpicking. You don't have to be trying to get point scoring or gotcha moments. You can build a really fun win-win journey with the person on the other side of the table. And I learned a lot of that from Pedro. Even though you're not big five-year planners, curious to ask how you think about where WCM goes from here. 
Yeah, we're not big planners, Ted. Yeah, I think if you ask me what the five-year plan, it's 10-year plan, it's all I care about. What are the vibes when I walk into the office in 2035? Are the core values more vivid or are they less vivid? Are we finding people who are flourishing in the platform we've created and pushing the organization brand new ways I can't envision now? That's a good thing. Are we looking back at what we're doing today and cringing a little bit at the way we do things? That's a good thing. That would be my measures of success. I would hate to walk into the room and get any semblance of bureaucracy or groupthink or everything we've tried so hard to insulate ourselves against. What are some of the things today that if you look back five years ago, you would say are cringeworthy from how you were doing things five years ago? Oh, there's so much. We have a big believer in leading with vulnerability. We did an offsite several years ago where my trick and myself, we got up and we just talked about every mistake we made over the last 10 years. And that was, it was like a 50 point PowerPoint deck. And showing about these mental models that were just, you just look at them like, what were we thinking? Stock, individual stock picks. And I think just doing that and having that vulnerability, it just gets people in the right mindset. I'll give you a very live example, Ted. We're doing our reflection week now, which I talked about. One of our newer analysts, Dave Hang, he just wrote a beautiful piece about how he struggled with vulnerability because he viewed vulnerability as imposing on others taking rather than giving. And a lot of his identity growing up was being scrappy, self-sufficient, having grit, figuring stuff out on your own, don't impose. But now he's seen other people show vulnerability and he's viewing that as courageous. It makes him want to help them more. So he wrote a really interesting piece, how to reconcile that. When I'm doing it, I feel like I'm a taker. When I see other people doing it, I view them as a giver. And I think really leaning into that vulnerability is critical and something we as leaders always try to do and probably overdo it sometimes. But I think if you want to build a high trust team, you've got to get all the noise out of the way, the frictions, the insecurities. And I think starting with vulnerabilities, or at least I found to be the best starting point. Sanjay, I want to make sure I get a chance to ask you a couple of closing questions before we wrap. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Yeah, I've gotten into this sport called paddle, which is like a tennis squash hybrid. And yeah, Mike Trigg likes to talk a lot of trash. So I'm, I got a great doubles partner, so I'm looking forward to taking him down soon. What's one fact that most people don't know about you? I like to move a lot, like move houses a lot. And it drives my wife crazy. But I try to explain to her, there's a thought process behind it. I do feel like moving slows down time, or at least stretches out your perception of time. Because you find a new neighborhood, you build out into a new home, get ingratiated in a new community. I think it slices life into individual chapters. And there's a novelty and memories around that. No, but if anyone out there is nodding, my wife is not nodding, I can tell you that. What's your biggest pet peeve? Problem admirers. I think if you can't think of a solution to a problem, or at least a pathway to a solution, don't make your identity just constantly griping about the problem, amplifying drama around it. I feel like a lot of young people especially get trapped in that identity. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? Two people you've had on the show before, Ted. Mike Trigg, Paul Black. Mike, I said this in front of a firm recently. If you really want to grow as a person, find someone in your life who, when you're down, will pick you up. And when you're up, will push you, often beyond your comfort zone. I think there's a lot of people out there who'll do one or the other. Exceptionally, few people will do both. And Mike's been that for me for 20 plus years. Paul, that leadership style. He is throw you in the deep end, but with a lot of grace and a lot of patience. I'll give you a quick anecdote. I was like 28 at the time, pretty new to WCM. And I went to Paul, and this is problem admirer mindset right here. I said, Paul, I don't think we have a research culture here. If I was him, I would have been like, oh, just shoot me out. Been, what do you know about research culture? And instead, what he, he just said three words. He said, go build it. That jolted me into a solutions mindset. It was so important for my career. And it's something I've carried forward to this day is always look for solutions. And if you hadn't said those words, maybe I would be a problem admirer today. What's the best advice you've ever received? I've had a few people tell me this, and it sounds so simple, but just do exceptional work because someone will eventually notice. I think people short circuit their potential by you just get too caught up in your circumstance. Maybe you don't get along with your boss, your colleagues, you're not getting the promotion you think you deserve. It results in demotivation, your work suffers. But I think if you just pour your energy into doing great work, someone will notice, and it'll usually be someone you can't anticipate, a customer, a partner, someone outside their organization. Sanjay, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? Let me pick my sports teams more wisely. I was a long-suffering Knicks, Mets, Dolphins fan on the East Coast. Now I'm a long-suffering Angels, Clippers, 
Chargers fan. But more seriously, it's finding your own voice, Chad. I think when I first joined WCM, I think a lot of young people get in this trap is you hear Paul Black, Mike Trey, Kirk Wernrich, our founders, tell a story and tell it so persuasively about what WCM is, what makes us tick. And you try to memorize those words and spit it back in the marketing setting, for instance, and you just get blank faces on the other side because it's not authentic. And so I think you can borrow ideas, but once you develop your own voice on the topic and lean into your journey around it, it changes everything. Your disposition changes, your body language becomes much more engaging, meetings transform from a test to a conversation, and you just have more fun doing it. So that's a big lesson. Well, Sanjay, I want to thank you. This goes all the way back. I remember an email you sent me almost seven years ago. It was one of the first true fans of the show. So it's really fun to come full circle. And thanks so much for sharing this insight in the, the research process and the continued evolution of WCM. That's no, a pleasure, Tan. It's been fun watching your journey as well and seeing the podcast have so much success. Thanks for listening to the show. To learn more, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can join our mailing list, access past shows, learn about our gatherings, and sign up for premium content, including podcast transcripts, my investment portfolio, and a lot more. Have a good one and see you next time.